Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are reminded this morning that your Son, Jesus Christ, came into the world and that he had knowledge and wisdom beyond our understanding. We pray that as we gaze upon him and think of you, that we would know that following you is the way of wisdom, that we would trust that your Son would give us wisdom in all things. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be only acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I want to start this morning by giving you just a a very tiny and incomplete glimpse into my sermon preparation. One of the things I sometimes think about is, well, how does this passage relate to the Sunday that it is? And for those of you who are following along and paying attention, well, good job, first of all. But more importantly, it's, of course, Epiphany 1. And if if you know what that means, you know, some point earlier this week, Friday, for those of you who weren't here, was Epiphany. Or, to put it a different way, the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. And as I was preparing and looking at Proverbs 8, 22 through 36, I, I sat and thought and thought and wondered, well, what in the world does Proverbs 8, 22 to 36 have to do with Epiphany? <clears throat> and finally, it, it occurred to me on Epiphany Day itself, as, as I was preparing for our Holy Communion service that night, and I realized that there were, there were two groups in the beginning of the Gospel accounts. There were those who worshipped Christ and those who did not worship Christ. And so the question I think that we have to start with is, well, who worshipped Christ and who did not worship him? And there's there's three groups that I noticed. Those who worshipped Christ were the angels, the shepherds, and those whom we commonly call the wise men. Now, it makes sense that the angels worshiped Christ, right? We read in Scripture that they were looking forward to the day that Christ would come into the world. And so when that happened, we have that amazing account that we read Christmas Eve of the heavens just exploding open in praise as the angels worshiped and told the shepherds what they saw. Now, the next group is, of course, the shepherds. And, and we kind of romanticize what we see here, right? We, we kind of have this nice view of these noble shepherds out in the field, but, but really they were kind of thought down and looked, thought and looked down upon. And they were kind of the lowest of the low. They were icky. They, they spent nights and nights and nights in the fields with their sheep and slept in caves. And ugh. We're far better than them. But that was the, the thought process. And that was the second group that came to worship Christ. And the third group are those whom we call the wise men. But this is a a strange translation, probably magi or sages or or straight up magicians is a better name. And that that is just wild and out there. And for a little more context, most likely these men were those, if you think of like the book of Daniel and other places, where the, the kings of the Old Testament, not, not the kings of Israel, but other kings, would call all their wise men in and say, you know, I had this wild dream. What does it mean? And this is probably who they call, would call in, or, or the ones that would like cut open animals and read their entrails. That's a thing. 
it's not a thing in, in Judaism or Christianity, but that was a thing in the ancient Near East as they, they cut open the entrails and try and figure out what was going to happen next by looking at, and, and that's who most likely these men were. For, and, and a lot of people believe that they were probably from where Babylon once was. Now Rome had kind of sacked everything and taken it over. But they, they probably had some pre-existing knowledge from living through Israel being got brought into exiles, exil, ex, exile, thank you. I don't know why I had a hard time with that word this morning, but apparently it's a hard word. And so having read these texts, all of a sudden they see the star and they go, that's the thing we've read about. Something big is happening in Israel. We best be going. So think about this. The, the three groups that we read about in the beginning of the gospel accounts that worship Christ are the angels. That, that makes sense. But the shepherds, these lowly people, but God revealed to them that Christ had been born, and so they went and worshipped. And wise men from another kingdom. But who didn't worship Christ? It seems like Joseph's family wanted nothing to do with him, or very, very little to do with him. Probably because they were ashamed that their son had, you know, made, the, made his fiancée pregnant before they were fully married. <clears throat> which, of course, we know isn't the case. I'm not saying that's the case, but that's what they appeared to them. The scribes and the Pharisees, who we read on, on Epiphany, were afraid that this boy was born, most likely because they wanted to keep the peace and the fragile security that they had under the Roman Empire, so they didn't really actually want the Messiah to come. And finally, the governor, that is Herod, who wanted to kill Jesus, because he was afraid that he would overthrow his power. You see, the connection here, if you haven't picked it up quite yet, is that worldly wisdom will dismiss Christ for worldly comfort. But wisdom that comes from God, the wisdom that was granted to the angels, to the shepherds, and to the magi or wise men, lets us, fills us with joy and urges us to leave behind our comforts for a greater joy and a better thing. My friends, what wisdom do you live in? What wisdom do you abide in? And this is the question that our lesson from Proverbs this morning begs. What wisdom? Do you live in the folly of the world or the wisdom of God? There's a famous, very, very dogmatic, in the worst possible way, atheist whose name is Richard Dawkins. If you've heard of him, you know some of what he says, and you'll recognize that he said a quote much like this over and over and over again. If you don't know him, it's fine. You're not missing much. <clears throat> He's very mean, so I don't feel too bad being mean back. <clears throat> but he wrote, the universe we observe is, has precisely the properties you should expect if they're at the bottom there at the bottom, there's no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Now Dawkins fancies himself to be very intelligent, and he is in fact very intelligent, and he thinks that he's novel, but, but believing that the world is random and brought out of chaos is as old as humanity itself. It's as old as the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned and all of a sudden started misunderstanding the world. Many, many ancient Near East myths believe this very thing. One, one myth that's kind of my favorite is that, you know, two gods got into a big fight and 
One chopped the other in half, and that's how the world came into being. Another one believes that the world just kind of sprung up out of the oceans. But our lesson today also recalls this creation act and tells us something really important about creation. As we start to read Proverbs 8, 22 through 26, we realize that Saul Ullman poetically gives a voice to wisdom and shows its preeminence. In other words, he shows that wisdom existed before creation. He notes all of the things that wisdom existed before. Wisdom predates the earth, he says. Wisdom predates the primeval waters. And I'm going to get slightly distracted here just because it's very interesting. But so many creation myths, including evolution, incidentally, believe that life came out of the waters. And so there's something polemic that, that, uh, that Solomon is doing here. He's saying, no, no, wisdom was before even these primeval waters, which life seems to have sprung up out of. And at least was the first substance on earth. He goes on, wisdom predates the creation of the hills and the mountains. Wisdom predates the dust which we learn in Genesis 2, that God scooped up, formed man, and breathed life into. Wisdom was established, he says, before the foundations of the earth was ever established. My friends, there are two ways to view the world. Wisdom as being this new and novel thing that we're just starting to understand, or as being more ancient than the world itself. What is your default assumption? But the passage goes on, and in verse 27, Solomon makes this really blunt statement. He writes, I was established, I was, I was there when he established the heavens. In other words, God, in other words, he writes, when God established the heavens, wisdom was there. Wisdom was in some form or another an active participant in the act of creation. When worldly wisdom, while worldly wisdom has said that the world comes out of chaos, there is no meaning. It is that wonderful phrase, pitilessly indifferent. <clears throat> God says no. Wisdom was there when the heavens were established. Wisdom was there when the primeval waters were established. Wisdom was there when the boundaries of the sea were created. Wisdom was there as the earth was carved out. But verse 30 says something more, and really an important part of this passage. Wisdom, as, God, as one of God's attributes, was constantly at its side. That's how our translation v- vendors, uh, renders it. It says, I was beside him. But it, it's more than that. He was beside him as a chief artisan or master worker. Think about that for a second. God did nothing in creation that did not use his wisdom 
Or to put it more positively, God used his wisdom as he created the earth, as he carved it out, as he created you. You were created in wisdom. As we finish 30 and 31, there's this wonderful little poetic structure, and I know probably nobody wanted to come here this morning except for maybe Ben and hear about poetic structures and A's and B's and B's and A's. Oh, a Kathy apparently as well. But there's a structure of A, B, B prime, A prime. And it goes, A, I was filled, that is wisdom was filled, with delight day after day. B, rejoicing always in his presence. B prime, rejoicing in his whole world. A prime, returning back to this theme of delighting, delighting in mankind. So not only was creation wise or wisely done, not only was wisdom the chief architect in creation, wisdom delights in creation. Creation, my friends, is a delight to the wise. But it's more than that. The imagery that Solomon evokes is that of wisdom dancing in God's presence, dancing with delight throughout the whole world, dancing in delight with your creation. The world may say that creation is pitilessly indifferent, but God says, I have done all of this in my wisdom, and it is delightful. Creation by the hand of God, is delightful. There's a great Anglican preacher from the 1800s whose name is Charles Simeon. He picked up on this personification of wisdom and wrote a sort of a conversation, if you will, describing God's attribute of wisdom, discussing with other of God's attributes the fate of humanity. Simeon writes, God foresaw that man would fall and left to himself would perish like the fallen angels. But he, greatly desiring to save man, if peradventure it might be accomplished, consistent with his own perfections, that is his attributes, every one of his attributes concurred in the wish. But some of them, there seemed to be claims that interfered with the object which, they, which could not by any means be set aside. Holiness required that its hatred of sin should be fully known. Justice required a satisfaction for the violation of God's law and could no wise be induced to relax its demands. Truth also desired that its honor should not be compromised. It had no objection to the exercise of mercy if only the sacred word of God might be kept inviolate. inviolate in other words, the word of God not be violated but it could never consent whatever object were to be obtained thereby that the immutable God, in other words, the unchanging God, should be made a liar. In this difficult, all looked to wisdom to know whether she could devise any way whereby the exercise of mercy might consist with right of all other attributes of the deity. Wisdom intimated that she had a plan to propose a plan whereby mercy might have free scope for exercise, 
not only without invading or injuring the right of other attributes, but to have great advantage of them all, insomuch that all should, not, should be honored to be an infinite, infinitely greater extent than they ever could have been. If their demands having been satisfied through the destruction of the whole human race, wisdom proposed that the Son of God himself should take upon himself the sins of the whole world and suffer as man's substitute all that the truth and holiness had denounced against him and all that the most righteous justice could require. Such a sacrifice made to the law and justice to truth and holiness would, be put, would put on all of them an honor, which they could never be by any other means obtained. Now, before we think about this just a little bit more, Simeon is clear, and I want to be sure that you caught this before we go on, that God's attributes are not at odds with each other, but that it took wisdom, the wisdom of God to save humanity. Simeon, like Solomon here, poetically connects this section to wisdom's acting in creation and therefore in the incarnation of Christ and notes that it is out of God's wisdom that your salvation is devised and secured. Simeon, <clears throat> St. John the Evangelist, of course, made this connection 18, some 1,800 years before Simeon even lived, calling when he called Christ the Logos, or Logos. The Logos is, of course, when we read in John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is that term, Logos. And it has more than just simply the word, like I wrote down words and I'm now saying words and, and all of that. It's a philosophical understanding of the world itself. And that understanding of the force and the power which created, created earth, the earth, became man in Christ. It's a dual argument that John makes in John 1. It's a dual argument in that he was speaking both to the Greeks who would have understand this as a philosophical idea, as well as to the Jews that the word God spoke to create the earth became man. And in such, John connects this to Solomon here in chapter 8 and to the creation in Genesis 1 and 2. In a very real way, John says that God's wisdom in the man of Jesus Christ came and dwelt with us. <clears throat> and this connection is driven home in the last little section of our reading this morning. When Solomon re remembers the great and incredible value of wisdom, he presents the reader with two beatitudes. Two beatitudes which Christ fulfill in his life. Beatitudes are those st statements of, blessed are those... And Solomon writes, blessed, or I sometimes prefer happy, are those who walk in the way of wisdom. Blessed or happy are those who keep the way of wisdom. There is great delight in the way of God's wisdom. <clears throat> and although we so often fail to live in God's wisdom, if you abide in Christ, Christ has fulfilled, Christ has walked and kept the way of wisdom for you and I. And in abiding in Christ, he gives you that 
wisdom. One of the oldest catechetical works that we know of is called the Didache. And it starts with, I think, actually, I I always used to say that the Westminster Catechism started with the best statement of, of a catechism, but I think the Didache actually tops it. The first sentence of the Didache is this. There are two ways, one of life and one of death. But there is a great difference between the two ways. So great, isn't it? <clears throat> this, is, this is echoing the very end of our passage this morning. Solomon ends this passage with, For whoever finds me finds life and obtains the favor from the Lord. But he who finds, fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. You see the parallels there. So it is that Solomon, that St. John, that the early Christians and Simeon recognized that wisdom, and, and therefore John and, and the early Christians and Simeon recognized that Christ is, as he said, the way and the truth and the life, that through him comes life. <clears throat> and the Didache spends its entire time drawing out the distinction between these two ways of life so that the Christians would know how to live, to draw out what godly wisdom looks like. And Solomon does the same for his son in the book of Proverbs, shows what godly, way, godly wisdom looks like. He shows that the way of wisdom is life. That the way of Christ is life and the way. That Christ is the wisdom of God. That Christ, who contained God's wisdom, is the delight of God the Father. There are two ways, my friends. One that leads to life, to joy, to wisdom to delightfully dancing in the presence of our Lord and the other that leads to despair and to death. Which way are you on? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.